Welcome to Belfast City Vineyard, where we are pursuing formation in the presence of Jesus, community gathered around him, and the impact he empowers us to bring in our families, city, and the world. The following message was given at one of our Sunday services. For more information, visit our website at BelfastCityVineyard.com. Wonderful, wonderful to be with you guys this morning. Excited to look at our passage together to Mark. If you're tracking with us at home, wherever you are in the world, we are like so glad that you're tracking with us. If you're here in Belfast and you can't be with us in person, brilliant. If you're halfway around the world, wonderful. Feel free to drop us an email at any point and just let us know that you're connecting in. We would love that, but we're glad that you're here. So we've actually arrived at a really important part in our journey through Mark, and I'll do my best to do it justice this afternoon, but I highly recommend that you take some time just lingering in this passage. Have you ever noticed just how many films and how many TV series end unresolved? Yeah? Like, it's like it brings the specifics to a climax, you know, the crime gets solved, the sinister plot gets thwarted, the battle gets won, and you're settling down into that kind of nice feeling of completeness that all's right in the world, and then almost from nowhere there's a thread left hanging. Have you experienced this? It's a, if the reviews go well, we can pick it up from here thread, right? You know, the crime's solved, but Moriarty is still out there at large. The Death Star explodes, but Vader slips away and the Empire will rise. Avatar 2, after like five hours, <laughs> comes to an end. Clearly ready for Avatar 3. I've got some recent beef with that one. You know the feeling, right? And you have to wait then for like a whole year, or maybe even more, to pick that thread up again. Well, it turns out that's not a new technique. Long before the Bible had chapters and verses and, and all those numbers that are in there for you, the writers and the compilers and the editors were using incredibly sophisticated methods to create breakpoints and, and reflection points in their work, to shift the focus and the tone and, you know, from one direction to another. And how we tend to read the Bible, we would often miss those subtle hints. You know, what have we been saying for what like feels forever now about Mark? And what's that one question Mark keeps asking? Who is Jesus? I'm moving off the squeaky spot. Who is Jesus? And he told us in verse 1, and heaven declared it from the clouds in, ver- in chapter 1. And for seven more chapters, he's been poking at that, that same question. Who is Jesus? And last week, in the last couple of weeks, we hit this climax, this resolution of season one, if you will. It's all been about who is Jesus, and he finally turns and he asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, with some divine help, speaks for the group, and he says, you're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for, the Savior, the sent one from God, here to restore Israel. You're the longing of generations finally arrived. And they finally got it. The disciples have got it. The question has been answered. The season is resolving nicely. Get ready to roll credits. 
except Jesus leaves an unanswered, unresolved thread. You're right. I am the Messiah. I am the one you've been waiting for. But just so you know, as the Messiah, I'm going to suffer and die. Wait, what? That wasn't in the script. That wasn't in anybody's plan. That's messed up the whole season. We thought it was coming to a nice finish. That can't be right. And Andy did a great job over the last couple of weeks just unpacking that passage. I won't recover it now. But uh, you should definitely go and listen to it again. But with that resolution and then the seeming curveball, it's as if Mark is telling us where we now need to turn our attention. What season two is going to be all about. We've resolved who Jesus is and what he came to do. But how he's going to fulfill his mission is entirely unexpected. And with laser beam focus, Jesus is now locked on Jerusalem and on the cross and in conflict with the religious leaders of this day. And the question that Mark wants to force his readers to consider in this coming season, if you will, is will you follow him? Will you live and walk and sit in the way of Jesus? Are you only in this for the glory, for the good times? Do we want a triumphant gospel for winners? Or will we walk through the suffering and the pain of this broken world step in step with the one who came to redeem it all? That's what season two is going to be about. So let's read together a passage from Mark 9. And if you look for it, like every good season or film, you'll get a little recap of season one. A repeat of the voice from heaven in chapter one with a subtle twist. And a recalibration of our focus. So Mark 9, chapter 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I love that this is in brackets for Mark. He didn't know what to say. (laughs) They were so frightened. He's out of his mind. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. We've had this before. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone Uh, with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restore all things. But why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much be rejected. But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. Amen. What in the world is going on here? Right? I've been reading the Bible, or hearing the Bible read, for almost 40 years now. I doubt there's a single week within that time, and in that span, that something of this book hasn't drifted past my eyes or my ears. But it's only in the last 
decade, maybe even less, that I've begun to realize just how incredibly sophisticated and rich and nuanced this thing really actually is. For most of my life, I read stories and passages and maybe even whole books as standalone units. You know, Daniel in with the lions has nothing to do with Joseph and his fancy coat. Jesus feeding the crowds wasn't connected to David killing Goliath. And whatever the madness of weird beasts and apocalyptic horsemen and lamps in churches is about in Revelation, it's got nothing to do with a tiny tax collector up a tree. That's how I've read it most of my life. You know, I find a story and I read it and I look really hard to see, can I find an application point for my life today? And then I'd feel a little better, feel maybe God might like me a bit more, because at least I tried today. Anybody else? Just me? But the Bible, if we will take time to really explore, was never meant to be read that way. It is one unified story. From beginning to end, interwoven in the most intricate and astounding of ways. And it's meditation literature. It's meant to be read and reread and pondered and wrestled with over and over and over again. Parts that you read aren't fully supposed to make sense until you read something that was read or written thousands of years later. And then read it back and see how one illuminates the other and back and forth, drawing parallels and connections and contrasts between seemingly completely unconnected passage. The complexity is literally breathtaking if we begin to take the time and pay it the attention it really deserves. Anybody any idea what this is other than an absolute mess? <laughs> it's the current state of our new comms, cap, comms room in our brand new building. That's what it looks like right now. <laughs> Carnage. Those wires run to multiple points in every room across the whole building. They'll, very soon, I promise, all be neatly connected into a lovely combs cabinet with hundreds of sockets. I just lost some of you, you completely like them. I checked out. And they'll give us the ability to connect any two points in the building, regardless of how far apart they are, to send and to receive from any place to any place, back and forth, to pass internet signal or audio or visual or both. I have no idea how it works. It confuses my mind no end. We're paying people that do. Don't panic, but it's class. But it's not unlike what was in the Bible author's minds as they penned the scriptures. They were constantly pointing forward and back, drawing connections between things that were separated by pages and generations and years, bringing depth and richness and meaning in ways that we can easily miss. And this passage right here in Mark feels a little like that photo. There are so many threads running backwards and forwards throughout the scriptures that it's really dizzying and really easy to miss. Let me try and see if I can connect a few of them for us this afternoon. So let's see, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain. Straight away, we should know something is afoot. The game is on. High places in the Bible are always representative of encounters with God. 
One writer calls them the suburbs of heaven. When you read Heinlein, you think it's go time. Our expectations should be tangling with what might come. And then Mark uses this phrase, after six days. It's odd for Mark, and odd means intentional. It's one of only two places where he gives a specific time. Normally Mark is immediately, and after, and then, and let's go, and boom, 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 next, what's happening? But it's one of only two places where he gives a specific time. It links this passage firstly to Jesus' encounter with Peter and the disciples in chapter 8 that we looked at the last couple of weeks. We're supposed to think whatever happens here in this moment relates to Peter's confession. And it relates to Jesus' revelation about his suffering. And it relates to his cryptic clue that some, not, some of them aren't going to die before they see the fullness of the glory of God and his kingdom coming. So all that is in our minds. But for a Jewish reader, there is a huge hyperlink here. They didn't have the word hyperlink. You all know what a hyperlink is, right? Click on one link, takes you to another webpage, and you're suddenly down a three-hour YouTube rabbit hole. Hyperlinks. Six days is a really odd number. It's not the usual complete Bible numbers of seven or ten or forty. And it would have the early hearers jumping right back to Exodus 24. It's another, there in Exodus 24, there's another story with a six-day period. And once they were there, their minds would have blown with how many threads and links and connections there were. I'm not going to blow your minds because we don't have time, but let's try. Let's try a little bit, see if we can get you there. So Exodus. Because people have been enslaved by Pharaoh for generations, God sends Moses and Moses leads them. Uh, the whole nation of Israel out of slavery. You remember the plagues and the, the fire and the waters parting and Charlton Heston is doing his thing. And, right, you're with me? And God protects them from Pharaoh and he provides them uh, what they need through the wilderness and he brings them to Mount Sinai, a high mountain. Remember? Exodus 20. And he's invited them to commit to being his people and he would be their God. And they all say yes and it's great and we're having a party. And God says, I'm going to come down in a dense cloud, Link. On the mountain, Link. And I'm going to speak to you, Link. But the people get scared. And so rather than hear the voice of God for themselves, they ask Moses to go in their place. And God says, okay. And he invites Moses and three others to come up the mountain, Link. You getting it? Um, and to come closer to him and be in his presence. And then they wait our six days before Moses can go higher into the cloud of God's presence. And he receives all the instructions of how the people are to live in relationship with God. How they're to be his chosen people and steward his presence among them. And Moses has gone 40 days and the people get a bit squirrely. And so they do what people naturally do. They build a big giant golden calf. <laughs> and they straight away break the promises that they've made to God. Moses comes down, he's furious, he smashes the commandments, he's like raging. God wants to kill them all and start a game with Moses. He pleads for them, he intercedes, God relents. God says, okay, come back up the mountain again. Mountain's important. And this time he goes higher and closer into God's presence. He sees his glory, the very essence of of God. The cloud covers and it speaks. And Moses comes down with his face glowing bright white. Link? Yeah? Radiant. 
because he's been in God's presence and he's seen his glory. And the glory and the brightness and this shining face freaks the people out. So he starts to wear a veil over his face. And Exodus closes in chapter 20 with God to build this tabernacle, this tent in the desert that God's asked him to build. And God's presence comes like a cloud. And it covers or it overshadows the same word as here on the mountain in Mark 9. His presence fills the tent. And God is there dwelling amongst his people in their presence. Except Exodus closes with this problem. An unresolved threat. Even Moses, the one who's been so close to God and been in his presence, can't go into God's presence. He can't enter the tabernacle. He can't go close. He's not allowed to come near because of the sin of the people. Because of how they've turned their back on God. And it seems like everything is lost. God's right here in our midst, but we can't come close and we can't receive the blessing of his presence. And then the very next book is the remitted me to be read. Just straight through. The chapters and verses. The very next line, God writes, When you're coming near, bring an offering. Or bring a coming near thing. The whole book starts with God solving the problem that the people have created. And he gives them this guideline of instructions of how in spite of their sin, they can be his people again. Have him in the presence. It's wonderful. Two books later, as Moses is dying... One long set of speeches in Deuteronomy. And he tells the people, this is how to live so that you steward the presence of God. This is how to live so he's close and he's with you. But guess what? I know you're not going to do it. It's great leadership, isn't it? I know you're going to fail. I know you're going to mess it up. And someday, someone's going to have to come who's greater than me. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, he says this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Big, giant, hyperlink. That's a lot, right? Nowhere near comprehensive, but can you see the threads pulling, pulling from the Old Testament into this passage? And lots of them were actually already pulling back from previous stories in Genesis. And lots of them were already pointing forward to other stories throughout the Old Testament. And all of this is playing out in Mark's readers' minds. Something is happening on this mountain. Something significant. Something new. This moment is huge. We are dialing in. And then we have the appearance of Moses and Elijah. Just park the weirdness for a moment, right? Let's just pretend like they haven't been dead for generations and that's a bit weird. Let's just park that. Moses, aside from the links that we've just seen, is also a representative of the law, of the first five books of the Bible, and of this overarching way that the people were supposed to live in relationship with God, of who they were called to be. And then Elijah was a representative of the prophets, of those who spoke on behalf of God to the people. And as Andy mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Elijah was significant because we're told he didn't die. He walked with God and then God took him up in this chariot of fire to be with him. And there is tons of threads linking here that we don't have time to pull on. But suffice to say, they represented some of the best of Israel's history. They were some of the greatest leaders. And yet here in Mark, they aren't credited with saying anything specific. 
that they don't shine with the glory of God. The voice from heaven doesn't mention them. And ultimately they're gone as abruptly as they arrived, leaving Jesus alone as the one the disciples are to look to. Mark's telling us, he's showing us that he transcends all that came before him. That he's going to complete all that the law and all that the prophets pointed to. That's a weird hand gesture to do when you're preaching. <laughs> Sorry about that. He fulfills it all. Their presence here and Jesus' difference to them is showing that there's a new way of being right with God that is being ushered in. The kingdom is coming in a different way. And then we've got this idea, picking up some more threads, just helping you see. Then we've got this idea of God's presence covering or overshadowing the whole scene on this mountaintop. It's the same word as we've seen used in Exodus 40 when God comes and dwells. When the very presence of God Almighty comes and takes up residence in the tent. And it's the same word used again in 1 Kings 8 when Solomon has finished the first proper temple in Jerusalem. And the cloud and the fire appear again and God's presence moves in. It represents the awesome, tangible, visible presence of God and it's a word and an idea that links back to all that. Something you know that the very few in the Old Testament would dare to come close to. But it's also the same word that Luke uses when describing Mary becoming pregnant with God himself in human form. In Luke one thirty-five, The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come in you and the power of the Most High will overshadow or cover you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then pointing forward, Luke uses it in Acts 5 to describe the power that Peter carries when even his shadow is known to heal those it falls on. Acts 5.15 As a result, people brought those who were ill into the streets and laid them in beds and mats that at least Peter's shadow might fall on or cover or overshadow some of them as he passed by. And they would be healed. Something is happening here in Jesus that moves the distant, the unapproachable, uncontainable power and presence of God into the personal, into the accessible, into the very womb of Mary. And then on to this mountaintop where the disciples witness it from a distance. And then pointing forward into their everyday experience. If they're willing to walk in the way of Jesus. You see that movement, that shift? It's incredible. Threads drawing from what's gone before and pointing to what is to come. And of course then, as Mark switches gear, this opening scene of season two, as I've called it, gives us the fortiest of what lies ahead at the cross. The disciples here get a glimpse of who Jesus really is. His true power, his true glory, his true significance. The Father speaks directly, and this time he's not speaking to the Son. That's what we had in season one. He says, you are my Son. This time he speaks to the disciples. He says, this 
is my son. Recognize his glory. Recognize his power. He's the son of God. He's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He's far beyond even Moses and Elijah. And his readers are invited to hold this moment. Right at the middle of the, the book of Mark. This moment of glory and revelation and power. They're to hold it in their minds in comparison to what is to come at the end of the book, at the cross. This is who he truly is. But this is what he is willing to become for the sake of humanity. Private epiphany on this hill leads to a public spectacle on Calvary's hill. Here in the presence and the company of two of the greatest prophets of Israel's history. There, kneeled between two thieves. Here, radiant and divine, God-inspired brilliance. There, stripped naked in humiliation and shame. Here, God announces his identity from heaven for all to hear. There, a Roman soldier stumbles on the truth as he dies. Davis and Allison in their writings put it this way. Humiliated and exalted. Surrounded by saints and ringed by sinners. Clothed with light and yet wrapped in garments of darkness. This is the Messiah that heaven calls us to listen to. This is the way of Jesus that we are invited to enter into. It is not self-aggrandizing, but self-limiting, self-sacrificing, self-giving love, laying down the truth of his glory for the dirt and the embarrassment and the shame of this world. Because of the love for those that he created, who are now rejecting him. This is what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. Mark will keep asking, will you follow? The transfiguring, the glowing white, it's bleached beyond anyone could ever bleach, it gives us a glimpse of who Jesus truly is, of what he's chosen to limit himself from for our sakes, and who he will again be post-resurrection. We can see this thread running through to Saul's encounter with a blinding Jesus on the Damascus road. We can see it running through in Revelation themes of Jesus returning in robes of dazzling white. But what we might easily miss is that in Paul's writing, he picks up this theme for us, for you and I. This word transfigured, it's in other places, it's translated transformed the same word Paul uses in Romans 12 when he writes this. Therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God. This is your proper and true worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world but be transformed. Be transfigured by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is his good pleasing and perfect will. There's threads here running back even to Leviticus that we've seen with that offer, that sacrifice, that coming near thing. But Paul is literally calling us to be transfigured. Not into glowing, dazzling white, 
literal visual things. But as we walk in the way of Jesus, as we come near by aligning our minds and our thinking and our desires, offering our very day by day, moment by moment living in surrender to him, we offer those as coming near things that the glory of the heaven, the very presence of God comes to dwell in us. That his power radiates through us. Our words and our lives to the world around us. We, be, we are overshadowed and in turn overshadow those we walk past. It's an incredibly powerful thought. We see the links. It does the same in Philippians 3 with crazy hyperlinks to Exodus if you want to look it up. And we don't have time for Peter's response in the building of shelters or tabernacles. But again, there's loads of threads there about what these really are. But I get that this is weird, right? It's just me, it's weird, right? It's weird. Am I really wanting you to believe that some dead guys showed up and a cloud spoke and Jesus started shimmering? Isn't it just like a metaphor? Isn't it just this elaborate kind of wordplay or hyperbole? Well, Mark is in no doubt that it really happened. Peter talks about it in his own words, in his own writings in 2 Peter 1, saying, I was there. I heard it. I'm willing to die upside down the most painful death you can imagine because I believe that I saw it and I heard it with my own two eyes. He, was died. he died because he was convinced it was true. Mark's not trying to argue with you. He's proclaiming it and he's saying, you deal with your own responsibility. We live in a moment where suffering for Jesus will not mean for any or at least most of us, I would suspect, that we're going to die. I doubt that. But it will mean awkwardness and embarrassment. It might mean ridicule. It might mean mean things on social media said about you. It will mean putting our faith in things that others deem to be quite mad. It will mean trusting the inner prompting of God when we don't fully understand it. Or it isn't popular, or let's just be honest, it just plain isn't convenient. These threads that pull together paint a picture of a self-limiting God willing to turn his back on his own glory and choose suffering. Calling us to limit our broken and disordered desires. To lay down our rights and follow him. And doing so, somehow, bit by bit, will be transformed. And his power and his presence will take home in us in a way that the saints of old could not have even dreamt of. We'll get to come closer to him than even Moses and Elijah did. And his power in us will overshadow our reactions and our relationships, and our interactions, and our conversations in ways that we see the kingdom come all around us. If we can see it, it's astounding. It's astounding. Two Mondays ago, I was sitting attempting to journal, mostly wishing there was a spreadsheet alternative to journal, which I haven't yet to find. I give up, and I started daydreaming with Jesus, which is my favorite way to pray, and it's totally legal. Daydreaming with Jesus. 
I was daydreaming about our storehouse and our Friday church communities and about how we might see breakthrough for a number of walls that I just feel I'm banging our heads against. And I had this moment that felt a bit like a, a voice in the cloud kind of a moment. Inside my head, of course. And I felt that what God was saying is we needed to pick one very specific thing one person's asylum case, one family's housing need, one individual's addiction needs, and that as a team we needed to commit to praying for that one thing every day for a week. It's not a revolutionary thought, I know, <laughs> but it stirred something in me, and I got excited. And I wrote in my notebook, what might happen if we prayed? One line, what might happen if we prayed? And I knew it was an invitation from God to partner with Him. And I intended to act. And then I started to think about how everyone else would respond in our team. And how confession time, prayer never seems to me like a bold and dynamic leadership move. Kind of more feels like I have no idea what to do, so maybe pray. That's confession time. I think that might well be the point. And none of that's true, it's just my belief. I got inside my own head. I felt awkward. I said nothing to anyone, and I got busy, and I just kind of forgot. <coughs> Two days later, Wednesday morning, we were in our prayer meeting, and Laurie, my wife, prayed a very specific, very direct, slightly demanding prayer about a visa situation that would be dragging on for over a year. That afternoon, an email came through, and the issue was resolved, and the visa was granted. And I heard the voice again, what might happen if we prayed? So I shared it on a Friday prayer meeting before Friday church, and we got specific. Someone prayed in that prayer meeting for an individual who was having a really tough time, and we hadn't seen them in a couple of weeks, and they prayed that this individual would come today to Friday church. And they amened, and we all amened, and faith was high, and Laurie's phone beat, and it was a text. And it was a text from that individual declaring that they were on their way. They had had a hugely difficult morning and they'd gone home determined not to leave the house or to see anyone. And as we prayed, something hit them that they needed community and they needed to be in church. They showed up. Faith rose in the room. We picked a Syrian family from a Muslim background who were really close to us as our weekly prayer point. We were desperately in need of a house. We got word this week that they received the house, but on their expectations that they were declaring was a miracle. We've seen another housing miracle this week. We've seen homeless people come to church this Friday and break down in the presence of Jesus in response to someone's prayers this week. Our street team had incredible encounters with homeless individuals that they've been praying for by name this week. And this bizarre kingdom thing keeps hum happening. When they sit down with our friends on the streets and give them their time and their attention, don't treat them as homeless or rejected, but simply as individuals. As they engage in conversation, passers-by keep filling their cups with money. It's like the favor of the Lord overshadows them when we who carry the presence of Jesus come close. It's been a mad week. And that's only about half of it. And you can look at all that and think coincidence. And you can look at our passage in Mark and think hyperbola and metaphor. I'm with Mark. I'm not trying to convince you 
I'm telling you it happened. Maybe I'm lying. That's up to you. The kingdom is at hand. And God is constantly inviting us near. And he wants to transform us into his likeness. And overshadow the world around us with his goodness. We get to choose. You get to choose. Will you follow Jesus in the way of brokenness and suffering? <coughs> i got to leave the last two verses. There's some brilliant threads from Malachi 4. Look it up. <laughs> really good. The way of Jesus is locked toward the cross. The way of discipleship is through the cross. We can't circumvent it. It's not a gospel for winners. We leave you with this quote from James Edwards that sums it so brilliantly up. The disciples then as now are not expected to go it alone in this hard and joyous thing of discipleship. Precisely where they hear the gospel, where they see both its glory and their own inadequacy, there Jesus is with them. The one who calls the disciples to follow him does not abandon them for glory, but turns from glory to accompany them on the way to Jerusalem and the cross. Will we follow? How do you stand? I have ran horribly over and I am profusely sorry. If you have kids, I'm going to release you in like one minute. Please go and get your kids from kids ministry and then return and get some prayer ministry. Some of us, the thing God has for us today is to unlock a passion for the Bible. To reimagine the wonder of it. Some of us, it's about cynicism. Like, I don't believe that stuff happened and I'm putting it all down to coincidence. But I don't want to be that way. Some of us, we're right in the midst of suffering. And the idea that that's what God's calling us to, to walk through, is really hard. And we need this quote to be true. We need a God who's present with us in the midst of we pray and then we'll issue Jesus. We love you. We want to follow you. We want to see your glory. And we want to follow you into the most broken parts of this world. You know our hearts. You know what we need. Come in your power and your presence. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill us with. Thanks for listening to this message. For all the latest information about what's happening in the life of our church, or if you have any questions or comments, head over to BelfastCityVineyard.com.